This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Hello, everyone. At COP26 in Glasgow, a commitment was made to protect global forests. $20 billion was put on the table to restore mangroves and tropical forests, wetlands and peatlands. So I went to Conservancy International to talk to Giacomo Fedeli. He was in Belgium, and then I spoke to Bronson Griscom in Panama. They partner with the local communities that are likely to put this new protectiveness into action. But nature-based solutions, which is what they talk about, might ring alarm bells for some indigenous people wary of carbon offsets and carbon markets. So we'll start with Tishkin from Seed in the Torres Strait and Tiana Jakesovic from New Zealand. Our guest reporter in this first item is Amelia Gunneridge. The Declaration on Forests and Land Use agreed at COP26 committed to halting and reversing forest loss and land degradation by 2030. First Nations peoples steward over 80% of the world's biodiversity, so ideally this agreement should both provide for equitable representation of First Nations peoples and strengthen support to their communities in protecting forests. So in this segment, we're going to have a chat with two First Nations activists who attended COP26 and were there when the agreement was announced. We're going to find out what their experiences were like, where they feel like change needs to happen, and what impact this could have on agreements like the Forests Agreement. We want to know from their perspective, how will securing justice for First Nations peoples help in tackling deforestation and land degradation? Joining me now are Tish King and Tiana Jakisevich. Tish is the campaign director at Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. She also works with the Torres Strait Island organisation, Our Islands, Our Home, which supports legal action taken by the Torres Strait 8 to hold the Australian government accountable for the damage done to the strait by climate change. Tiana Jakisevich is a student and activist from Aotearoa, also known as New Zealand. Tish and Tiana, welcome. Welcome. Hello. I was like, I love that. <laughs> so let's start off. Um, I'd love to ask you both to just tell us a little bit more about who you are, what's your background, what is the work that you do? Tiana, do you want to start? Sure. Um, tēnā tātou. Ko waeo, he uri ahau nō ngā te kahanunu ki te wairo, nō te whakatohia nō ngai tūhui, me koroatea anō huki. Ko Tiana tōku ingoa. Um, so hello, my name is Tiana. I'm from the tribal nations of Kahununu, Whakatohia and Tūhoi on the east coast of the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, I am both a senior law and art student and currently taking a sabbatical and doing a year full immersion in my traditional mother tongue, Te Reo, um, and also work with uh, an Indigenous Ropu called Te Arafatu, who are made up of Māori and Pacifica Rangatahi based in Aotearoa, um, and we work towards or at the intersection of climate justice and Indigenous sovereignty. Kia ora. That's awesome. Thanks. Tish, would you tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Kapu uh, Bailad, Kapu Kut, Kapu Kubil, wherever you may be. Uh, my name is Tishiko King and I'm a proud Kalkalug woman. Um, I come from the Central Island group in the Torres Straits called Kalkagal Nation. And I am proud to come from the island of Masik, translating to York Island. I am the campaigner at Seed Mob and, uh, yeah, help organise and build our power with our island our home and really you know excited to be here and be able to you know share and be um having this conversation with uh my sister tiana thank you very much and we're so happy to have both of you here um in particular to get an insight into what your experiences were like at cop 26 because both of you were on the ground physically there in glasgow i attended virtually so i don't have the same perspective as you guys and i'd really love to hear what was it like to be there and to what extent do you feel like equitable representation was actually achieved for First Nations people from your perspectives? 
Sure. Um, well, this was my second time attending the COP conference. Um, so I was at COP25 in Madrid and then subsequently COP26 in Glasgow. Um, in terms of what it was like on the ground this year, there were both positives and negatives. Obviously, being amongst the pandemic, it meant it was arguably the least equitable in terms of access to space, um, but in saying that we Indigenous peoples had the second largest cohort behind oil and gas lobbyists, which is positive. However, only a third of Pacific negotiators were able to come to COP um, and subsequently like myself and the Indigenous peoples from Aotearoa that we brung only found out that we were coming to COP within the month before COP and same with Tish. Um, so in terms of that, there is not there was not much representation from the Pacific region. Um, what it was like on the ground, we all so we all kind of work as our own entity and within the International Indigenous Peoples Focal Group on Climate Change, which is a host of all kinds of uh, Indigenous organisations from throughout the world, um, and we unite on all kinds of issues. So, be it Article Six, be it loss and damage, be it whatever the regional issue of your peoples are. Um, in terms of big wins, we have been advocating for carbon markets and finance, Article 6, since Paris in 2015. We finally managed to get some semblance of safeguards for Indigenous rights and human rights within that rule book. So that's a, that was a quite a big win for us, even if it wasn't as strong as we would have liked. But more than that, like COP is also just about being with other Indigenous peoples, uniting, figuring out how we can build pathways to support each other together. So how can we get representation within each other's governments? How can we support what's happening in Aotearoa and, and Australia and the Pacific? And what does that mean to be in solidarity with each other? And just how do we want to, like, how do we envision ourselves showing up without these spaces being necessary? Yeah, I really echo that. Um, and, you know, my experience was a little bit different being a first timer and it it sort of came a very last minute. I was told five days before I was going. Um, but I think, you know, just sharing like um, exactly what Sissi Tiana said is that, you know, there was, um, wasn't as much representation from Pacific um, communities, which ideally who would have went I guess to COP would have been our traditional owners and claimants but you know still acknowledging how unsafe and uncertain the landscape is I'm glad that I went actually um to be able to still have that representation but you know and and to still be I guess a face because that was incredible like we were the second largest you know um delegation there and it was so incredible and I think that it was a win but goes to actually show why it's so important that when we see the largest delegation being fossil fuel lobbyists do more than ever do we need to make sure that there is representation there and from indigenous peoples from across this globe and that was a big reason you know um not only to sort of you know be uh, to represent um you know first nations people across um so-called australia but to you know make connections uh you know with other you know youth people that you know where we're seeing a lot now is that we're inheriting these responsibilities um because they're cultural responsibilities we're learning to what it what it needs to take to step up to you know make sure that we continue to advocate to ensure um our our global leaders safeguard the futures of our people and so that they can continue to survive and stay on their homelands their countries their islands their mountains first nations community um, need to be leading the solutions and so there were some missing equal opportunities um, and spaces the mana and love by standing shoulder to shoulder and solidarity is something that it gives me strength to continue on and be able to sort of like ramp the pressure up on our governments to act and do more. I think that's actually probably, you know, like something that everyone could learn from. I mean, learning to like be grateful for and accessing community and recognizing yourself as a part of a community rather than as an individual or a part of any one particular discrete group, you know, um, I think would change our approach to climate change. Um, 
in any case, I would love, I'd love to touch a little more on, you know, kind of what needs to change in kind of maybe more concrete terms, like maybe what were some of the barriers that you guys experienced, um, perhaps even at the negotiation table um, that you feel like needs to change or what are some changes you think could be made, maybe from the, from the side of the organizers, you know, or other nations, like what, what can be done to make things better, fairer, more just? Tiana? Sure. Um, I, I'll start by saying, so the Indigenous Peoples Caucus, the IPO, the Conglomerate of Indigenous Peoples Organisations, has the same status at the UNFCCC as other interest groups like researchers, as farmers, as non-government NGOs. And the difference is, is that we're not interest holders, we're rights holders. So, so while we're grouped in under interest holders, our level or the level of which what we're representing is going to be taken at the same standard as them. So in terms of making COP more equitable, I think the UN mechanisms as a whole need to, rep uh, to recognise that Indigenous peoples are rights holders, not interest holders, um, and that the UNDRIP, so the rights of Indigenous peoples, has recognized and enshrined rights, which every UN mechanism should abide by and should be mirroring for a way to build and be in right relationship with Indigenous peoples. Um, we're first and worst affected by the climate crisis. And if we don't show up, we're going to be on the menu. So there's so many things that they could do to make it more equitable. They said that they were going to have the vaccine rollout. They didn't. So our representation from Alfanonga in the African region was very low even in the pacific region you know we had minimal people showing up purely because we couldn't get home because there was no secured managed isolation hotels the cost you know we have to fundraise off our own backs because we're not from big organizations to get there um, and it all comes down to we're there because we're there for our community and our peoples Backing on top of that, absolutely, like it's these, you know, this representation that we have to crowdfund and source and, you know, trying to get us over there. And in a space where we should be there, there are, you know, so many limitations in those factors. And the moment right now is so crucial. Australian emissions impact our Pacific nations, our Aotearoa nation. Like, you know, we know that like especially as a developed country, we could be a global leader on action, but importantly, justice. But unfortunately, we have these that's still tied to oil and gas corporations in the leadership of the Morrison government, you know, you know, back from the critical changes need to see this decade. And we're not seeing that. We continue to see public money go towards, you know, fossil fuel finance. When right now, again, Australia is going through flash flooding and where we are seeing politicians, you know, try and do crowdfunders when we should be seeing our tax laws pay, you know, go to that. Going back to what Sissi Tiana was saying is that the communities that contribute least to the emissions is the ones that are impacted first and worst. And we are the ones, our communities, our people um, are the ones that continue to live off this. And for example, for myself, the IPCC report, um, you know, working group two has just come out and has actually critically stated not only Pacific Islands, but in the Australasia area, Torres Strait Islanders. It's so risky. We continue to see global leaders, um, you know, disregard the safety and, you know, the futures, especially for young people. For example, on the Central Island Group on Musig, where I come from, my families still hunt off the reef. And if they don't catch fish, they don't eat. And as we continue to see our oceans warming, that shifts the food source. But then not only is that it's a, it's a right of culture, we have practices to get to that point where then if we can't practice those traditions, we're losing our culture, we're losing who, who we are. And that is the connection that people, that I saw actually, that folks are still missing. The IPCC report, I think, was harrowing in so many ways. Linking it back to the theme today, the existing processes of land degradation and deforestation will be combined with climate change to accelerate loss and degradation in much of the world's forests, which many um, First Nations people, Indigenous peoples the world over are also dependent on for life, livelihoods, culture, spirituality. Um, and not only that, 
these people are protecting and supporting these ecosystems in a really important and critical way. The forests agreement, for that reason, aims to support First Nations people and smallholder communities, small uh, local communities. Um, so I wanted to know what you guys thought, you know, agreements like this, what kind of impact that could have, or how do they need to be strengthened? Um, will better representation and participation have an impact, you know, on these processes of degradation of forest loss? You know, if you have any examples, for example, of like communities that are doing work out there protecting the land and that need to be supported, this would be a good time to kind of mention that as well. Okay, yeah. So in terms of forests and, and land use and, and what Indigenous peoples are doing, I think it, one of the things that comes out of, of these things is is currently the monopolization of nature-based solutions um, and that being the big current buzzword for for how we're going to solve this ecological crisis and the thing is is that nature-based solutions are indigenous solutions they're how we've been living as kaitiaki as as guardians of and protectors of of the environment and so the thing is is that we don't want to commodify things like forests and what we're finding now is that with carbon markets and carbon trading we're having more people land bank for for example tree planting and planting non-optimum trees on land that has maybe previously been wetlands or native vegetation um, and the consequences of that means that the repercussions of the land is not prime use for either of those things, but it brings quick financial gain. Um, so in terms of forestry, that's a really key point of that we don't want people to like commercialize what living in harmony with the environment is supposed to actually mean. Yeah, but again, the, the forest thing is great for our whanonga in the Ecuadorian Amazon and the um, South American region who face the devastating impacts of the deforestation of the Amazon, um, which is our Earth's lungs, essentially. Um, and yeah, in terms of movements that we're currently supporting in Aotearoa, there's a thing called Putiki Point, which is a um, it is a habitat of the Kororo, which is our native blue penguin um, that is being destroyed because of a marina being built at Putiki Point. Putiki Point is the wahitapu of the um, native people in, in Waiheke Island um, and the basically they're building a marina which is a floating car park for rich people to bring their yachts in so there is an occupation there at the moment um, that we are supporting along with many others and things that we can get behind um, in terms of what we're doing at the moment is trying to get the government to get behind redistributing land back and what that actually looks like from a practical perspective so how can we support everyday New Zealanders that want to get more involved with their communities and returning land that their family may have been on for six generations um, back to the traditional uh, whanau, hapu and iwi that were on there. So Tish, what do you think um, on this point, you know, like, is there any work that you're aware of that people in um, Australia, you know, like the, how people can be supported? Yeah, I think importantly, like, you know, it's, we want to support, um, you know, those communities that are leading um, and that's, you know, their country and, and amplifying just their story. You know, land degradation and deforestation isn't something big here. Um, I Actually, I say that's a lie. You know, we do have the Tasmania and Tuckinia forest, but um, I guess for, especially for the work that I do, you know, I'm not um, the expert in it um, and with those communities that are impacted, but like Sisitiana said, you know, where we can and help stand in solidarity and support those who are on the front lines of those big corporations, like those, like our brothers and sisters over in the Amazonias who have been just leading the fight for decades, if anything, just making sure that their stories are amplified and, you know, that people actually are aware here in our First Nations community and um, which is something that I love about grassroots communities here around, um, you know, so-called Australia is that they get a lot behind um, Indigenous um, rights, land back and um, 
human rights. And so, um, you know, something that we, um, at being at SEED, we build our movement is something that we also like to um, empower and educate our young mob on as well. You know, the deadly work that, you know, other Indigenous knowledge holders um, and advocates and leaders are just doing in their, you know, work to have that sense of like strength and, you know, resilience, but, you know, just to know that we're all in this together. We're working on some obviously deadly campaigns. It all connects to each other, right? The fact of the matter, it's also the same people that are behind the root cause of it. As we sort of, you know, move forward into 2022, it's continuing to um, have these like strengthened relationships like um, with Sisitiana and be able to stand together and make sure that we share culture and country. Beautifully put. I think, you know, some of the key messages that have emerged from our chat, like how important, you know, like spaces like this are for First Nations peoples to come together and actually just, yeah, like be together, share, build relationships. It's really inspiring for people like me as well to um, seek out our own community and reflect on how that can motivate, you know, me to be involved in climate action and to and what we need to change in these big events, um, how we categorize groups. That's really important um, in order to get the space right, have the voices that need to be amplified, amplified. So I'd like to thank you both very much for your time and your insights today. I'm sure those listening in are hugely inspired by the work that you've done and will hopefully be moved to join you guys in your action. Esso for having me. Thank you. And Esso Sisitiana. Nice to meet you. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Groves is our topic and Giacomo Fideli is with us from Brussels in Belgium. He is one of the scientists who peer-reviewed the recent IPCC report. Although he grew up in mountain forests of Switzerland, he has become very involved with mangrove restoration with a group called Conservation International. So welcome Giacomo. Tell us what led you from landlocked Switzerland to coastal Madagascar. Thank you, Vivian. Yeah, it's quite a big jump, but uh, I always fall in love with trees, trees that are so diverse. They grow in so many different ecosystems. And as you said, the trees, we can find them in very high mountains like in Switzerland, but also on the coast uh, of, many, of many countries and especially the tropical ones. And these ecosystems are very special because sometimes they are really at the interface between fresh and water and, and salt water. And, and I really fall in love with, with, with mangrove. Um, mangrove uh, and, and their huge roots, very complicated. Um, they create very complicated patterns, but they are a very fascinating ecosystem because they provide so many services to the people, for the communities that really depend on them for for their livelihoods and even for their life the you know those communities usually especially in tropical countries in developing countries they might not have many resources and 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 nature can really help them in in many ways they and especially mangrove i think that they particularly play an important role for for those communities in the face of climate change for example they well, tell they, us how, yeah. how people you have met are actually adapting to climate change. I know you're a specialist in adaptation, and that's what we're very interested in. Yeah, so people everywhere, I think what is, was clear as well from the report that was just released by the United Nations is that climate change is happening, is everywhere, and really we need to uh, start dealing with the consequences. And 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 communities around the world, especially those in very uh, vulnerable situation, they, they have been used to, to find strategies to adapt. And so, for example, I think communities uh, in Madagascar, in Indonesia, along any coast, they really know, I think, that mangrove can really protect them from sea level rise, increased floods, 
those storms they are becoming increasingly frequent and, and more severe. So mangroves can really act as natural barriers to protect, physically protect those communities and all their assets. So they really save lives and they save a lot of um, potential damages. And so communities take care of the forest, the mangrove, they, they use them sustainably. Um, they, they sometimes also restore them when they, they're damaged. They, they really depend on them for, for also their small scale fisheries and, and, and production for their firewood, their wood. Sometimes they even collect honey from, from the bees. And, 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 and so they are really fascinating ecosystem that can help people in so many different ways. Yeah, well, at, at Glasgow, the COP26, um, something called the Great Blue Wall was launched. And I think it was to establish a sort of network of marine and coastal conserved areas. So you would have in your mind a map of where all these places are. But are the building blocks in place for these kind of local adapting projects to be taken to scale? Because everyone says there's not enough money in this yet. We need to put much more money into it. Well, if suddenly the avalanche of money came to you, is this ready? Are these local communities ready and networked already to be scaled up? Yeah, you mentioned COP the last year in Glasgow. Yeah. And so there was this leader declaration on forest and land use. And we saw more than 140 countries coming together and really committing to protect uh, forest and halt forest degradation and, and forest losses by 2030. This include mangrove. So we have this political commitment, but I think what is really important is local actions. And as you said correctly, um, finance for this project is always um, a sticky point. But it was very promising that this time with this declaration, uh, a lot of finance, climate finance was committed. So more than $20 billion actually. And also financial institution committed to really um, eliminating um, agriculture commodity-driven deforestation. So the main risk for this forest and, and, um, and mangrove included is their conversion because of expansion of agricultural land, uh, especially for palm oil, soy, or beef, or even for pulp and paper. Um, they are often big companies. So that those commitments from financial institution and, and companies was, was really welcome. And you know what is I think missing now is really the local action. And I think that's when it's very important to involve local communities, indigenous communities. They really have the knowledge and, and, and they have been living in those environments for forever. Um, so they need support uh, sometimes to to restore those mangroves that have been destroyed, uh, to really protect their environment and, and manage them sustainably. Well, uh, to me, it seems like a race against time. I've read in researching this today um, that sea level rise will actually drown some mangrove, coastal mangroves in Papua New Guinea, for example, or Borneo. But Northern Australia has a lot of mangroves. Mm -hmm. What's the strategy? I mean, are you going to try to move mangroves inland or up in a higher altitude? Yes, I think the mangrove, uh, they're already very well adapted uh, uh, to, to this very harsh environment. So what is important here is really to help them to adapt themselves, I think, uh, by reducing all this human uh, pressure on mangrove, like uh, unsustainable, uh, management, like uh, extraction of, of, of wood and, and destruction of, of, of this forest. So by reducing these human drivers, we help them to, to have the time and the space to, to recover and restore themselves. Um, they will, as, as sea level rises, mangroves also naturally move. So they will naturally move inland. Um, the important part here is that we leave them space um, to do that. Sometimes we have overgrown and our houses are really reaching until the shorelines. Mm -hmm. And so there is no more space. Um, the, the, the coast has been eroded, the, the, 
there is no no more vegetation and then when it's that's when it becomes hard right if if we degrade mangrove up, up to a certain extent then it's hard for them to recover so i think here prevention is essential try to maintain those ecosystem healthy uh, they can regenerate themselves um, so really try to protect first sustainably manage them and and when it's too late sometimes also it's important to restore them but i would say this is the last uh, the last uh, resort yeah. and sometimes uh, also it's important as you said um, mangrove can be affected by climate change uh, and and sometimes the they might not be enough to, to protect coastal communities. And in, in that sense, we might mix our intervention with, with a bit of technology. We can mix green, so mangrove restoration with gray solution, which for example is um, seawalls or rocks or other structures that can help protect as well the, the, the coast. So sometimes it's, it's important to, to mix this solution to really be able to, to cope with this very extreme effect of climate change. Okay, well, look, now just perhaps tell us, the listeners might not realise why mangroves are so exciting as carbon sequestrators. You know, they, they have a much higher ability, don't they? Can you tell us a bit about the biology of the mangrove? Like, why, does, why is it really important to preserve these? For, uh, carbon sequestration. Yes, so mangrove, uh, they, they really cover 0.1% of our earth, but they manage to store 10 times more carbon than any other terrestrial ecosystems. So they're really very powerful uh, uh, carbon sinks. And because of climate change, this is so important. And they manage to store this carbon in, especially in their soil because of their root systems, because of the biomass, um, and and that's why they they are very important in our fights against climate change. At, at COP twenty six, the pledges were made to halt and reverse forest loss, but specific mangrove commitments were made by three countries. I, there might have been more, but I could only find the UAE, which surprised me. I think of the UAE as a sort of desert country, but apparently they have big mangrove um, forests on their coast. Fiji and Madagascar. And I mean, I wonder how they will go about restoring. Will, will they just be planting millions of trees? Yeah, I here we, we should really not count the number of trees and number of mangroves <laughs> that have been planted. I really yeah. think it's important to, to have a system perspective in mind and really yeah. also think about why are we restoring those ecosystems? Who are the people that should be involved? And who is gaining and who is losing from, from this? Yeah, as we mentioned, the mangrove can provide so many different benefits, but it's important to involve the communities in, in this project of restoration, not excluding them to accessing this, this kind of lands. So I think it's much more than just uh, replanting trees, which can also be quite expensive and might also, if not done well, fail. So there is a lot of preparation that needs to be done. I think science here can also help to really understand the dynamic and the relationship between the land and the uses and understanding as well the power dynamics. If mangrove disappear from that area, there, there might be a reason. And so we need to really tackle those root causes of changes and, and vulnerability. I'm looking forward to see how organization, NGOs and, and, and coalition can help countries like Madagascar, Indonesia, and others to to support the government to, to put into place sustainable management plans. Countries as well, they, they need to come up with plans to, to reduce carbon emission, uh, reduce vulnerabilities. And these plans could include the role of mangrove, I think. They require many actors' contribution. And I think that's only through this kind of collaborations and innovative finance mechanisms that we can really protect and restore these this incredible ecosystems. Yeah. Now, I'd like to just know a bit more of your experiences. You know, you've worked in with Conservation International. You've worked doing this IPCC peer report, uh, peer reviewing 
one sort of paperwork and one is, you know, getting your feet wet walking around in the mangroves, I imagine. So tell us a bit about the people you've met and the, the project that you think are, are really worthwhile. Yeah, I think what we say here at Conservation International, we, we have to have the boots on the ground, in the mud, and the head in the sky. So I was very fortunate to work between the science and also this uh, very practical projects really with actions on the ground. You know, it can be even just monitoring the amount of carbon and, and monitoring the land uses and doing forest inventories in these very particular ecosystems. So really counting, try to assess the, the carbon that this ecosystem uh, store and how the land have, have been changed. And so we need to go into these places and collect samples and, and measure the carbon in the soil. And, and usually we, we do that together with communities that they know the ways. And then my colleagues as well work with communities and really they have this participatory approaches to really understand the dynamics and what are the pressure, why mangrove is appearing and what could be the interest to restore and where and how. And I think it's this mix between local knowledge science, scientific projections that makes uh, magic happen as well. I mean, most of us have never been inside a mangrove forest. You can see it, you know, on the coast, but you've been there. What, what's your best experience with people there? Yeah, you know, it could be even just as a tourist. I remember in Mexico going through um, this river with a canoe uh, accompanied by colleagues and they were describing this this mangrove and all these species and the diversity of, of life. And they were telling me that these are the, the tallest mangrove that we can find in, 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 in the Americas. And, and so even just, you know, going through this little river um, or like this, yeah, this with, with a canoe and, and be completely surrounded by these trees and, and they're filtering the light. You hear the, the, the birds singing and the, the peace of the water and the waves. And it's just, you know, yeah, let's not forget that it's also a very special spiritual and recreational uh, experience that mangrove can offer. And, 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 and it's very peaceful. I would recommend everyone to go and, and, and see mangroves, or if they're lucky, even go through a mango forest and, and, and see the, the life there. Yeah, well, that's interesting because as you said, Local people have been living in some of these places for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And I think a lot of them, that preservation must be um, made in with stories, with spiritual practices, with animism maybe. Have you come across that, that people are preserving those places for something a bit bigger than carbon? You know, I feel terribly modern to be saying oh it's good for yeah. carbon sequestration whereas for people who live there it's for so much more can you tell us a little bit about that yeah i think in places for example like madagascar people have taboos people have legends people have um, tradition and family tradition and so sometimes there are sacred forests uh, certain uses are forbidden and usually you know, certain tradition and practices have evolved over time and they really might lead to a, a sustainable use, not always, but sometimes. So in Madagascar, for example, certain family couldn't use a certain species of trees during certain times. So they could, uh, um, you know, have this land set aside to rest and to let the, the ecosystem recover for a certain time. So I do believe that sometimes um, with the wisdom of, of people and ancestors that have lived there for, for so long, human and nature can find a balance. And I think, um, yeah, I don't have a specific uh, experience with the mangrove that I remember right now, but there are so many uh, um, ways that, that uh, and legends and, and tradition that can help preserve uh, this type of ecosystems. Mm. Katrina, what did you want to say? Hi. Hi. Um, hi. Um, you s was talking about how there's the collaboration between traditional local knowledge and science and 
another thing I can't remember your words exactly and you said that cooperation is quite magical and can see good results um do you have an example of that um and or or work that you've done together and potential success you you have already seen or hope to see yeah i can tell you an example where i used to work with communities in indonesia and so we we did a participatory mapping exercise so this means we bring a map uh, that usually is a is a base map uh, that is maybe a, a uh, an image from the satellite or multiple image from the satellite and we work with communities to identify the changes and help us describe what happened and so thanks to these satellite images that can go back in time 10 20 30 years we can see these changes in colors maybe we cannot distinguish the trees depending on the resolution but the communities they know so they were telling us oh here that's when this storm happened or this forest fire happened and 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 then here in this other area it's where we protected that area and when we restore this other part and so you know that's that's for an example where you know we 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 bring some external uh, inputs and then we stimulate discussions we learn from them how uses uh, of their natural resources have changed over time and help them as well maybe with climate projection telling them um, or making them aware about you know uh, these changes in precipitation and temperature uh, that science is predicting what could be the future impact and by the way they, they are already aware about this because they've seen the changes uh, in the past and so yeah these are examples of collaboration where we really stimulate discussion we learn from them it's an exchange and then we try to find you know ways of collaboration uh, as i said how try to understand why this forest was degraded and what could be changed and what support they would need. Um, yeah. Um, Giacomo, I think we, to finish, um, usually we finish on a high note, but today I want to finish a bit on a very hard note because you are in Europe and we are here. I think everyone in the world is looking at the Ukraine at the moment and wondering about worrying and being frightened by the awful things that are unrolling there and the war, possibilities of war and also nuclear war, you know, the twin apocalypses of climate change and war and nuclear war. So um, the in this context, the president of Palau at COP26, he said, you might as well bomb us if you don't stop the slow death of the small island states. Now, this is the problem with climate change. It's a slow death. It's not always in the news. And when bombs drop in Ukraine, it is in the news and everyone is focused on that. What do you think as a, a relatively young person, you know, about clim the climate emergency and the chances of us helping the small island states, helping those mangrove systems, helping people in these places that are very heavily impacted by climate change. And it's a slow moving death. It's not <laughs> not dramatic. And the media doesn't, I don't think, cover it very much. What are your feelings about that? Yeah, so you mentioned the war. I think there is a connection here with climate as well. I think the dependency on fossil fuel really uh, demonstrate how 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 this war started. And so by really addressing this issue of dependency of fossil fuel, shifting towards renewable energy, really reducing our carbon emission is not only good for peace, but also for the climate. Um, and so that's the way to go, I think, um, really move away from fossil fuel, um, restore and protect ecosystem that can absorb this carbon that is already in the atmosphere, prevent future climate change. And at the same time, I think you're right, climate change is slow. Um, it's not something that we hear every day in the news, but it's happening everywhere and people are affected, especially the most vulnerable communities that are poor and marginalized are paying the consequences, even though they contributed the least 
to cause climate change. So we are talking here about as well climate justice, environmental justice, and I think um, that's important as well to consider and how the more developed countries where I live right now, where you are, can also support with financial and technical solution countries that are struggling to adapt. And, and so we need political commitment, political solution, financial solution, and, and new collaboration to solve these issues that at the end affect everybody. So thank yeah. you. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking to Giacomo Fideli. He's in Brussels at the moment, but he works with Conservation International and he's an adaptation expert and you've really given us, I think I've picked your brains today. I've asked you all the questions I wanted to ask you. Is there anything I left out that you'd like listeners in Australia to, to know? No, thanks so much, Vivian. Uh, have a great rest of your day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I know, please stay safe as well with the terrible floods I heard in this in these days. Thank you very much. Thank you. Just... Now, now we go to Panama. The recording from a remote part of that country was not so good, so I haven't included the whole interview. But many thanks to scientist Bronson Griscom for talking to us about Suriname and Amazonas. Bronson Griscom is with Conservation International and his research on nature-based climate solutions underpins the latest IPCC report. So welcome Bronson. Just to start, tell us what it's like where you are in Panama. Thank you, Vivian. Uh, wonderful to connect. Oh gosh, it's a beautiful uh, sunny day in the Azuero Peninsula of Panama where I am and we're doing some research on forest restoration here. Well, at COP26, we were very interested to see that over 100 nations signed a pledge to stop deforestation or to slow it down. It's been on the agenda, the world agenda for a long time, but is this a new hope? And where are the most critical biomes for climate when forests need to be protected and restored? Yes, there are you know, a wide range of ecosystems around the world that need to be protected and restored. But for climate, we can highlight certain types of systems that are extremely important and that have a combination of both huge amounts of carbon for every hectare of land and are at risk of loss. And so that those are kind of, you know, I, I would say at the bullseye of um, the systems that we need to protect. Those are old growth or mature forests, uh, mangroves, um, peat forests, um, salt marshes. We, and we have developed um, maps to identify where are those places that we really can't afford to lose. What about tropical forests? Um, so tropical forests are, are part of that bullseye. And uh, a tropical forest tend to be storing a lot of carbon, you know, not, not to mention, of course, they're you know, incredibly important for you know, habitat for, for biodiversity. They're the most yeah. rich in species diversity, you know, ecosystem on Earth. Well, how does Conservation International make partnerships with local communities? I'd like you to describe some of the projects, you know, where they can be part of carbon removal. And I will just add, you know, following on your last question, Vivian, I would say they can be part of both carbon removal and protection. Yeah. You know, big, an important part of the economy in Suriname is, is, is essentially selectively harvesting native tropical forests for valuable tropical hardwoods. And many of the concessions to do this are, are owned by communities. And so there are, and many of these communities have decided that in order to have some income and have some resources, they're allowing companies to come in and harvest their trees, you know, for a fee. Um, and so what we're working with those communities to help them uh, develop, a, a, I mean, to work with a method of very low impact logging. So we can cut in half, we can, we can avoid about half of the damage to the forests and bringing in carbon financing. So carbon to, to allow them to essentially improve their, their business model and, and, and sort of make that, make that an appealing shift. I mean, change is hard, right? Any, any kind of change that involves you know, more careful planning and more careful um, operations. What about the financing? Financing people to keep the 
trees in the I see it as trees in the ground, but it's the carbon in the sink. <laughs> um, where's the financing coming for that? But a lot of it is coming from the from the private sector. You know, household names deciding they need to do two things. First of all, they need to reduce their, they sort of clean their own house, right? So minimize their own emissions. And for those emissions that are the most expensive ones, they can invest in natural climate solutions, essentially offset that while they work. One of the projects of Conservancy International, which is with the Kayapo people in the Amazon region, and I happened to go near there in the 70s, I went along the Amazon River and we could not go into Kayapo territory. The Chingu River was completely sealed off to foreign people because they explained to us, you know, we could bring measles or influenza and, you know, they were, it was protected. But since then, the Amazon Highway has been built and lots of that land has, there's been terrible violence along all the frontiers of the Chingu territory. After I was there, there was a musician Sting, who took one of their leaders called Rayoni. Listeners might remember him with his crown of yellow feathers and his lip plate. He had a lip plate. Rayoni went all around the world meeting world leaders, and he was even suggested as a um, someone who should receive the Nobel Peace Prize for his huge defence of forests and Amazon culture. And uh, people listened then, they were the, people were tuned in, but I wonder if nowadays we're so desperate about climate change, we call it an asset, a carbon sink. We just talk about, like you have just said, about carbon markets and I suppose all these mechanisms. But do you think we have the right relationship with those local people like the Kayapo who have traditional knowledge, who have, as in Australia, huge centuries, you know, thousands of years of living in harmony with the land? and protecting it. Do you think we have the right approach to them? Vivian, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you raised this example. And I, I actually have been to, to the Xingu River, Southern Pará and Brazil, at least that part of it, that it was near um, the Kayapo lands. And yeah, I, I will say this. One of the things I get really excited about is the extent to which there are so many ways that we can protect restore and better manage landscapes that are also part of, of social justice movements. So, and this is one of the, this is a great example. So there is an increasing body of scientific evidence finding that in, you know, in many different countries around the world, improving land tenure, so better titling of lands to, to, to reflect um, traditional land rights of communities and indigenous peoples tends to result in reduced damage and reduced loss of native ecosystems. And the Kayapur are one of those great examples where they have an incredible role in protecting their forests because their culture is a forest-based culture. And so part of social justice is not, you know, making a, sort of a statement about what, what these communities should do. But um, what's exciting is that what tends to happen if we improve recognition of local um, land rights is that, you know, uh, communities tend to protect their forests, this kind of constant invasion by, by people that have not been in, in those lands. And so one more comment about the context of Brazil that you mentioned, even though now, you know, Brazil is, is sort of, it's a politically challenging time for Brazil. Brazil is really has an, an incredible, incredibly good track record of supporting this sort of titling of lands, uh, traditional lands for Indigenous peoples. I would say better than my country in America. Yes, I think that's possibly true on paper, but it's just the illegal logging and illegal mining. And since they've built the highway, the Trans-Amazonic Highway, there's been so many incursions on those lands, I think. Uh, and since COVID even, apparently the COVID infections of mm. people in remote areas there, really remote, have been shocking. Thank you very much, Bronson. We, we've been talking to um, Bronson Griscom, who represents Conservancy International, um, and he's speaking to us from Panama. Thanks, Bronson. My pleasure. Thank you, Vivian. We are honoured to have the film director, Mandy King, with us now. She received the Order of East Timor for her contribution to that country's liberation. And now she has turned her gaze to the Snowy Mountains, which also needs liberation. So welcome, Mandy. Tell us about 
the Aboriginal people who are most connected to this area um, in, in your film, Where the Water Starts? Yes, look, um, we interviewed a number of uh, Aboriginal people in the film, as well as non-Indigenous people, but the core event uh, that actually occurred before we started filming was a water healing ceremony called Najong that was held up in Kosciuszko National Park in March 2019. And at that gathering, uh, Richard Swain, who's the main protagonist in our documentary, had met up with elders and networked with other Aboriginal people who were connected to other uh, river systems that ran into the Murray River. Uh, so there were people who attended that gathering, which was a public gathering from the Coorong uh, in South Australia, the Naranjeri people, uh, people who lived along the Lachlan River, and uh, of course, people who lived along the Snowy and um, Murrumbidgee rivers. Well, this film is going to be a real treat, listeners. And uh, for Sydney listeners, I want you to really tune in because it's on show at the Dendi Newtown next Wednesday, the 27th of April. But we'll give the details at the end. But um, Mandy, just tell us a bit more. There's a, there's a battle going on up there. And what does your film say to the people who thrill to the stories of the pioneering Australia and whose hero is the man from Snowy River? Yes, well, look, we do explore that theme in our film in some detail because um, to explore the, the cultural um, heritage roots of that mythology, um, which is a colonial mythology, and uh, it uh, very much underpins the arguments of those who wish to protect uh, feral horses um, known as Brumbies, who are now um, actually protected by legislation to live and um, procreate in Kosciuszko National Park at causing great damage to our natural ecosystems up there, which of course, being high country, are very fragile. Yeah. We're talking about sphagnum moss. We're talking about the creatures of the high country, which aren't as glamorous as Brumbies because invariably they're quite small. <laughs> and. Uh, beautiful corroboree frog, barely the size of a, a thumbnail, <laughs> and the different alpine crayfish and, and also threatened species of fish up there. Yeah, and so 34 species all up between the plants and, and the uh, animals up there that are threatened, the pygmy possum and uh, others. The um, ooh, broad-toothed rat <laughs> is another <laughs> one. So, <laughs> Okay, well, I'm so listening. This is so short because you can see Mandy's just getting going and she's a filmmaker. So it's all in these beautiful visual terms. It's a treat ahead for you. So head on to the Dendi Cinema at Newtown next Wednesday, the 27th of April, and the film starts at 7 p.m. I'm going to have a, a, a later program with Mandy and her co-director, Fabio Cavadini, because um, the, at, the film, at the film showing, there will be a Q&A and we'll be able to talk to the some of the actors. So thank you very much, Mandy. Pleasure. Thank you for listening tonight. As you can see, the commitment to the COP26 forest agreement will depend very much on our respectful relationship with Indigenous people. And in that vein, I'd like you to think about supporting two causes that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people who are very much on the front line. The latest IPCC report on solutions said they are on the very front line of sea level rise, which affects their crops and their livelihood. Uh, you can stand with the Torres Strait 8, and you can go to the website site of SEED or of 350.org by typing in the words, our islands, our home. They have an ongoing campaign and you can support that. Thank you tonight to Amelia Gunraj, Tish King and Tiana Jakesevich to Giacomo Fedeli and Bronson Griscom. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasurer. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5 p.m. to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Generally, like older, wetter forests, 
slow down the path of fire. And this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station.